Hello and welcome to this Sustainable Wine podcast. This is a recording of a conference session that took place on the 2nd or 3rd of June 2021 as part of Sustainable Wine's Future of Wine Americas Conference 2021. We'd very much like to thank the sponsors of that conference, BSI, Bodega Argento, Jackson Family Wines, International Wineries for Climate Action and Avenea. Thank you to all of those groups for their important support and I hope you enjoy the session. I'm going to ask our speakers to introduce themselves very briefly and then make some opening comments on um, this question, which may be controversial to some, not to others. Um, how realistic is a chemical-free vineyard? Does it matter? Is that indeed the wrong question? Uh, well, we'll hear from our speakers who are all experienced in this space. And we said in the text we're going to talk a bit about some of the solutions as well, because that's really practical. The, uh, the phrase I keep hearing is all the tools in the toolbox when it comes to sustainability and uh, I think that really resonates with, with lots of farmers that I know. So let's do some introductions. Uh, Felix, uh, tell us in 30 seconds about who you are and what you do. Hey, so we, hi, my name's Felix. Uh, I farm Kansas Vineyards in Kelowna, British Columbia in the Okanagan Valley, um, just shy of 50 acres in cool climate varieties in a cool climate region. Have been doing so now. This is my third season and I am trying myself at regenerative agriculture. Great, thanks. Look forward to hearing more about that. One. Hi, Tori. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm Juan Pablo Murgia. I'm a chief winemaker of uh, Avenia Group. Uh, Avenia Group has uh, vineyards, uh, especially in Mendoza, Argentina, and a small project in Chubut. Um, the whole surface is approximately, we're going to get up to 400 hectares of uh, organic vineyard. Uh, we are the largest organic producer in Argentina. Um, so this is pretty much it. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> oh, thanks, Toby. Hi, uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm the uh, winemaker uh, here at St. Supri. I go oversee winemaking and viticulture uh, here in the Napa Valley. So we um, have about 1,587 acres of property here. Um, and of that, we we actually farm about a third of that under vines. So we're sort of a, a certified Napa Green property. So our approach is towards a sustainable farming, uh, and our end goal is to make a great bottle of wine. But uh, to do it in an earth friendly fashion, as we come along. So yeah, that's what we do here at uh, Saint Supri in Napa. Great, thanks, Michael. Well, let's stick with you for now. Um, what does what that last statement you said mean in, in the context of this session? What are your views on this area? On Napa Green, well, <clears throat> Napa Green is a certification that's, that's uh, measured from a federal, uh, state and local level here in, uh, in the Valley. And it was initiated in 2003 uh, and St. Supri had their vineyards certified in 2008. <clears throat> and basically, uh, there's a set of guidelines we need to, to meet to be sort of an earth, have an earth-friendly approach or to be sustainable. And so... We achieved that back in 2008 on our on our lands, and then we have to reassess that every five years. And when that's reassessed, um, part of the program is that you not only have to meet the criteria you met the previous time, but you have to enhance it all. Um, and it takes into account everything from um, sustainable farming. You know, uh, you. Ca uh, um, being kind to the environment, maintaining um, wildlife corridors and so forth. So it's quite encompassing and actually is now extended to Napa Green Winery. So we actually have to do the same thing in the winery, but I'll leave it at that for a second. 
Yeah. And what about the sort of chemical free term? Is that just the wrong term? You, you do hear that around in agriculture quite a lot. But you know, there are those I, I, I speak to who say, well, what do you mean here? Because there are organic chemicals as well. So is, is the phrasing uh, unfortunate in this um, in this area sometimes? <clears throat> um, I think it's a great goal. I think it's something we should be striving towards uh, all the time. Um, and we certainly uh move in that direction but we we're not there yet um and but i think we need to continue to strive for it and, and drive for it is it achievable i don't know we um uh, i guess it depends how you define chemical too uh if you're looking at um, um synthetic products uh certainly understand what chemical means to them but also there's other products we use that are natural products so depends how you define it yeah, there's an interesting boundary, isn't there, between what is artificial and, and what is not. And indeed, I've heard that in, in some parts of Europe, the rules are very different. You know, some bio-control substances can be organic in Germany, but not organic in France. So it's nice. a confusing, confusing spectrum. Juan, what are your views on this? Well, um, we follow, in our case, uh, we follow the organic manual, that it's, uh, that it's the law here, but... Uh, but it's, it's a little bit more than that. It's, it's, it's a concept, it's a philosophy, but uh, specific to that question, um, that, that, that free chemical, that means what uh, Michael said is uh, free of synthetic, synthetic chemical products um, and go back to the products we used to use in the old days, the, the sulfur and copper that are allowed by the organic law uh, and of course, not to use uh, genetically modified organisms. Uh, so this is this is the main concept. But but of course, then uh, when when you, you you go deeper into this concept, uh, of course you have a lot of alternatives that are more natural, like your natural manure, your uh, reuse a lot of uh, rest of weeds, of pruning, of uh, products coming from the winery, like. Uh, like uh, the skins, like the stems. So uh, you start to get into a, a process, natural process, and you don't need anymore this synthesis chemical products. But one more, more, even more important thing is to avoid all these products is uh, the understanding of your place, of your vineyard. I think this is the, this is the key point here. Is it, this is what, what, what we do in our place is to uh, stay in the vineyard, is to measure, is to anticipate. Uh, we have a weather station. We, we anticipate when it's going to rain, when it's going to be high temperature, what what new weeds we have on, on the vineyard, what new insects we're gonna, gonna go to fight against. So uh, the more you know for your place, the more you anticipate and the less you need this synthetic chemical tools that are not allowing this in this concept, you know. Thank you. Very interesting, Felix. Turning to you. Yeah, um, chemical free. I mean, we all dream of it. I just spent the last three mornings getting up at three o'clock and spending eight hours on the tractor to go spray. I'd rather have uh, not done that. Um, it's been done, or is being done in agriculture and broadacre agriculture. There's guys who've gotten to the point where they go in and seed and then they go and harvest. And those are the only two passes they do in their field. They don't fertilize. They work with cover crops, with the system as a whole. Um, and they've been doing so successfully for 20 years. And um, 
the the stuff they grow is way more nutritious than anything you can get at a grocery store um, if you measure the bricks. Um, but they also in Broadacre get to rotate and get to use multi-species covers. Whereas we in vineyards, we're kind of by choice or by default, we are farming a monoculture of, uh, of shrubs, of vines, and we get um, the intro space to, to kind of, and undervine space to, um, to play around in the surroundings. Um, I think it's definitely possible. We have managed to um, shift away from all systemics in the vineyard and uh, shift to just certified organic products while we're not certified organic as a company. Um, we did just uh, get audited for the rollout of the Sustainable Wine Growing BC program that is uh, being established. Uh, haven't heard back from it yet, but fingers crossed that it all works out and uh, the coming vintage will be certified sustainable. Um, again, a program with lots of criteria that, um, much like Michael said, the Napa Green is, it's not just the initial thing. It's You have to keep working on it every year and making improvements. It's very much a dynamic system and it touches on everything from HR over environment, over financial sustainability too. And um, chemistry is, chemistry or lack thereof is a big component, um, but it's not the only one. And for us, what really helped our transition into using um, less and softer products is technology. We bought a sprayer that immediately cut total output of chemistry by 50 to 75%. And um, also the mindset of everyone working at the company. My, uh, my entire staff, really, I, when I first decided to stop spraying stemics, it was really a conversation with them and talking about it and uh, really showing or coming up with the benefits, which I only saw benefits um, in it. And that without that, it wouldn't have been possible. If, if not, everyone is behind it you're going to have a really hard time because if you just stop doing things and use softer products, it's going to catch up with you really quickly in a bad way. So while we're on this journey to, to fewer inputs, um, should we be talking more honestly and robustly and transparently about managing risk over prohibition uh, of, of what we are doing? Felix, what are your views on that? Um, I think it's a it's a fair point. I mean, we currently are not certified and are not seeking organic certification because we still want to keep ourselves that kind of backdoor. If we have to save our crop, then I'll do something to do so. Luckily, I haven't had to do it. Um, but often organic guidelines are just prohibitions. They don't help you to make better decisions. They just give you a whole list of products you can't use and don't make any suggestions as to what you could do. The, the kind of consulting part um, is not there. And uh, yeah, we just, we just allow ourselves to, to have to, or to be able to make that spray, apply that spray if, if we see the need to. Fingers crossed it doesn't happen. Same question to you, Michael. Um, really, it, it, toxicity is about parts per million concentration in many cases, isn't it? I mean, is, is there a bit of a misunderstanding of what modern risks are, and should we talk more about them? Um, yeah, it's a complicated question. Um, look, th there's a risk in anything we do, but what we, what I think we do here at, at our place, we'll try to look at things as a global picture. So, while we're not chemical free. 
but we strive to continue to move in that direction. Whatever products we do use, um, we'll bring them on board to think about uh, about the fact of whether they are biodegradable. And so when you talk about toxicity, that sort of plays into that a little bit because if a product is biodegradable, it shouldn't be creating a toxicity. However, you need to be aware of what you got. The other thing is to minimise the amount of usage of various products. That will minimise your risk as well. And so we we try to do that. And the way we'll do that is we try to monitor our fields fairly tightly, fairly closely, and we have a tools to do that in this day and age, simple things being weather stations, other things being... Um, uh, NDVI imagery, which now you know we're looking to use them with drones and what have you, give us greater information on our fields. The more information we have, the more we know. Therefore, the the the, the less often we have to treat because we're aware more rapidly. So that sort of helps us to manage risk. But is there risk there? Yes. Whenever you put a product on, you bring risk of toxicity. I guess. You minimise it as long as you don't bring any harsh products on. And that's what we we try to do. I mean, the products where we use, I mean, uh, we're trying to get away from synthetics, but it's kind of tough to get to a zero uh, synthetic approach. It's not impossible, as one was talking about. But, um, but uh, if we have an occasion where that needs to be considered, then we look at the, the chemistry of that product and ensure it is biodegradable. So... Thank you. Yeah, Juan, I wonder what your thoughts were on this. Do you have a kind of hard line in the sand where you say to the left is synthetic, to the right we can use? And how does that come about? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, well you, you, the question is risk, risk over prohibition. But the thing is, um, sulfur and copper are, are allowed, are not for, forbidden. So um, those are the products that uh, our grandfather, grandparents used to used to use in the vineyard, you know, sulfur for for, for milium when you need it, and then peronosporum, amotritis. You use copper, or um, so you you have tools. You 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 have uh, you you are not uh, forbidden to any chemical products, and you have some specific organic allowed products. Uh, but um, I'm gonna go back again to the, the, the first concept I mentioned, and you can manage the risk uh, when you can anticipate the problems that you can have in your vineyard. And to anticipate that, you have to you have to have a deep knowledge of your place, of the all the phenoms that the, all the um, all the things that are going to happen in your vineyard in terms of raining, temperature, pest. The, you have to know very well the cycle of your vine and the cycle of your, of your weeds and the cycle of your, the plagues and the insects you have, you're gonna have. And of course, uh, I haven't, we haven't talked about that, but it's, I think it's one of the key points, at least in our vineyard, that it's soil. We are talking about uh, not a lot of substance and this include uh, synthetic fertilizers. Um, and I think it, this is very, very, very important. And we focus most of our energy on, on the soil and study the soil. Actually, what we did uh, was is to study and subdivide all, all our vineyard in, in different blocks that respond to a different texture of soil. And that means different organic material in your vineyard, in, your, in the specific block, different 
irrigation system, so different needs of water. So once you, you understand uh, the place you're managing is much more easy uh, when, when you don't know your place and things start to go over control, you have to go to a chemical solution that it's always there, it's easier, and it's going to resolve your problems. But of course, this is not our, our, our idea. It's, it's the, the idea is to have a more natural, environmentally care place. And, 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 and finally, just to, to close the concept, wh why we do, we do this? Because we truly believe that this is the best way to uh, express the terroir concept and to have richer grapes with richer taste and flavors. And we have, we have, we have checked on that since, since the last 10 years when we started to grow our vineyards this way. Do you think if we do more knowledge sharing about how you can do this on a budget, that this could, the work that you're all doing could, could work for those producing wines at a, a lower cost price? I remember talking to a, a Bordeaux producer a couple of years ago. I'm not going to say who it is. They're very famous. They've got biodynamic vineyard so that narrows it down um, but they also have a crew bourgeois vineyard and they said to me look this wine sells for 15 euros a bottle and we'd love to be biodynamic and chemical free but we if we don't spray sometimes usually once a season or, or more we will lose the crop and then people are unemployed and, and the, the thing's unviable so what are we supposed to do and they were really upset about it you know they didn't know how to solve that problem of course i didn't know <laughs> so i said i'd i'd ask around um, and i just wonder with all this collective knowledge we have if, if if it's possible to to kind of cascade some of this knowledge down to those more marginal vineyards so that they can act on this sort of knowledge felix what do you what do you think about that are there just some hard boundaries that we hit at some point and i know it is very dependent on where you are in the world of course no i think yes. the biggest boundary is is uh, people not looking outside their own industry. I mean, we as a wine industry are very focused just on grapes. And if you go beyond that and go into general agriculture, you'll find companies who will, sure, there's consultants, you pay them, um, but there's also just literature, YouTube videos, hours and hours of speeches, just people who have been doing stuff on hundreds, thousands of acres of broad acre crops and have started on a budget because they had to, because they lost everything to weather and then they just put in a cover crop and just one season of that changed a lot of things for them. And um, if you manage to transfer that knowledge into your system, into each individual block, onto almost each individual vine, um, you're, you can do a lot of good for very cheap. It can be as easy as just grabbing a bag of sugar and spreading a bunch of sugar around your soil to uh, get your microbes going in the spring and sugar is cheap. Uh, there, are, there are some good solutions out there. Juan, what are your views on this? And then Michael, we'll come to you for comment one. It's, um, first of all, it's not, it's not a fast, it's not easy to change from one year to another. Uh, because you, uh, some places can can look like very hard, especially places where where uh, they have a lot of raining. If you have one thousand millimeters raining the whole year, it's gonna be a tough work. I, I don't say it's it's not impossible. It's, it's possible, but uh, it's gonna take some time because um, 
you start to adapt, your vine starts to adapt, your uh, environment of the place started to adapt to the new techniques. And it's not gonna happen from one year to another. We've been managing our vineyard this way for the last 12 years. Uh, and at the beginning, it was not easy because we were used to, to working in, in some way, but uh, my recommendation is to uh, take a look back a little bit. Um, if you think about the vineyards of the beginning of the last centuries, they didn't have this uh, synthetic chemical technology. They only have sulfur, copper, and of course, work very hard on the soil with horses, now with, with tractors, but uh, it's one of the key points to work very hard on the soil, to open the soil, to get oxygen to the soil, to activate the microbiology pool on the soil. And this is going to be a great change. To have a soil alive is one of the key points here on this discussion, you know, mm -hmm. to, to give a, a artificial fertilizing to the vines and have a very small and, and, and weak root system is not, is not gonna be good for a healthy vine. If you have a good root system that is going to go deeper in the soil, you're going to have a greater structure. Uh, well, the aerial part of a vine is an image of what, what's going on under the, uh, under the soil. So if you, if you build a solid vine, a solid vineyard is going to be easier to support a pest or uh, a rainy year and well, this is, this is the concept. Thank you. Uh, Michael, let me see if you want to add anything to this. And then I have some questions for you all around sort of practical things we're doing in the vineyard to, to bring it to life. But Michael. Well, in a similar fashion to what Juan is saying, I think that it's a global picture and your location is, is uh, important. A high rainfall area with more humidity is going to be more challenging to eliminate some of these things we're talking about. Um, we're not really in that situation, but we I can give you an example of our situation from a global perspective, and part of this is to eliminate, or the resulting, some of the result of this is to eliminate uh, the, uh, the number of products used and, and the uh, frequency of product use, and that is just from the global aspect. I mean, we've done things like um, uh, incorporated um, Clemens uh, discs into our program, which we can use for undervine weeding. We found that's useful until we have ground get too too dry and it doesn't work, and that'll cut roots off a big weed. So that eliminates the use of treating weeds. However, later in the season, it's not because it, the ground is dry. We couldn't use it, so we can't found a new tool, which is a mower that'll go under the vine. That eliminates weeds. So that eliminates a lot of things. Then we brought in sheep, and by bringing in sheep. That eliminated the use for us to send a tractor through our properties at least one time, so that reduced our carbon footprint. Different subject, but it's still part of the whole global picture. Um, and uh, then, we, you know, all of these activities are associated with timing, weather scenarios and what have you. And then we'll, we've, <clears throat> we, we're sort of tapping into the biological control situation as well, where... You know, on our properties, we've got, I don't know, 100 bluebird boxes and, and they're after insects. And we've got um, owl boxes and hawk perches, which is after vertebrate pests that can damage, cause damage in vineyards. So that's sort of a natural sort of control. It eliminates, um, you know, uh, other 
avenues. So it's a, it's a whole sort of um, global picture as such. When we come into the canopy of the, of the vineyard and what we're doing there, then it's a matter of light exposure, which is part of our winemaking approach, of course, but also increases airflow through our canopy. So once again, by that monitoring, we're looking at um, minimising what we need to use. So we're looking at it from a global perspective very much. Um, and, and, you know, we were even got taken it further about nutrient, you know, to eliminate or reduce fertiliser application by maybe bringing in more natural products such as kelp, which you can, kelp can, uh, or seaweed can be, um, you can have that in products that can be, be sprayed in, in a foliar aspect. And when, when they're sprayed, they're actually, there's, um, uh, they not totally understood, but there's some hormonal responses which can initiate the access to biochemical pathways to enhance nutrient uptake in our plant. When our plant is healthier, it tends to be under less pressure from some of the stresses we have to use product for. So it, again, for us, it's we don't know the big picture. We don't know that we're going to ever get to chemical free, but we certainly like the idea of it, you know. <laughs> And what about integrated pest management? You, know, you read about that a lot. I'm never quite clear who's using it and where and, and whether it's something that encompasses practices which other people were doing anyway. I mean, what are your views on that, Michael? Well, that's part of what I was talking about with, with the bird box and so forth. That's a bit of an integrated pest management approach. I mean, blue, we, we, our bluebird boxes, we, we, you know, we encourage a habitat for, for the birds. Um, they do feed on insects, of course. Uh, you can't really program as to exactly what insect you wanted to target, but that'd be nice. But um, still, it makes for a healthier environment. Um, you know, the owl, owls and the hawks, like I say, we encourage them in the habitat uh, and they sort of control vertebrate pests, which can be damaging in our area. Um, so that's our part of the integrated pest management. We have looked at, uh, but we, uh, into, you know, we haven't really got too far into this yet, but we have looked at sh should we be introducing various bugs? Then, um, you know, you look at the, the wasp that can go after mealybug. Um, there's people that are introducing that into their fields and what have you. We haven't, we don't have that as, a, as an issue as such, but we do wonder whether there's aspects for that for other issues we occasionally see. Um, so, yeah, we, the integrated pest management is, is a really, we, we're sort of uh, involved in that and looking to be further involved in it. Thanks. Uh, Juan, let me bring you in here for some more practical uh, tips on things you're doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're doing some of the same practices. And where does, what does IPM and biocontrol mean to you in, in the vineyard? Well, this is, I think it's uh, one of the most interesting points here. Uh, conceptually, is the integrated, the biocontrol is to, to get the balance between control the, 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 the best under a limit, under a line uh, that uh, is not going to cause you economical damage or uh, quality damage, and you can live with them without killing them. So uh, I, I have a few examples of what we, what we do. We work very hard on that. Uh, for example, there is the maybe it, it changes to one place to another. All all the countries has completely different pest problems. So the, uh, the integrated fire control could be different. But in our case, for example, we have the, the, the vines fly that it's very, it's attacking a lot of vineyards in Mendoza. So we are not killing the flies, but we are using sexual confusion pheromones. So we reduce 
the population and we reduce the pressure of the plague without killing them. So we are co-living with them. Uh, well, I think the largest uh, insect uh, problem is ants. We have a lot of ants and we, uh, we understood how to live with them. Uh, and we have different techniques. We, we started to study the biological cycle. We know when they, when they go out to eat the vine leaves. So we cut the weeds and, and have it available for them so they can eat this weed and not our vines. Uh, we plant um, plants with flowers that are attractive to the ants. We are attacking the fungus that the ants eat by some specific organic products, or we are introducing some new fungus that eat that fungus. So it's like a connection to uh, stop this, this, this pressure of the play. And of course, there are some physical techniques that you can use. For example, ants like to put their eggs in very, very warm soils. So if you have the rose in the vineyards, in summertime can get up to 60 Celsius degrees. So uh, what we are doing is to plant weeds, natural weeds to refresh, to make that cooler. So we are forcing the ants to go somewhere else where it's warmer. Uh, so this is, a, this is a biological, not, uh, you know, we are not attacking the, the, the ecosystem, but we are controlling our pest. And last, last is, we are working very hard on nematodes that it's a, it's a plague. It's an underground plague with insects. So we are using garlic compost products to reduce the plague. We are putting underground the, 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 the skins, the fresh skins from the winery after pressing. So they are fermenting under the soil and they are warming the soil and killing the nematodes. We are planting some new, uh, we are studying on new weeds that they have some toxins in their roots that are going to attack the nematodes. And so uh, I, I can go and go with some different examples of, of biocontrol, the integrate plague. So uh, this is very, very important. But again, once more, you have to know your plagues. You have to understand the ant cycle, the, the, the fly cycle, and uh, all the different insects to, to prevent and to find the way to reduce the pressure of the plague, not to kill him with a, a specific chemical product. Thank you. It sounds like you should be making nature documentaries while you're making wine. <laughs> I want to watch that. It looks fascinating. You're becoming microbiologists. <laughs> no, we have, we have a big team. We work together with the uh, university. Well, we have some programs. So... Uh, well, it's it, it's a big it's a, a big surface of vineyards. Approximately, we're gonna go to 400 hectares. So, in such a big place, we we need to to uh, you know to study and to do research. And so, we have a great team working on that. Certainly, sounds like it. Uh, Felix, what are your views on these uh, tools of uh, biocontrol and, and IPM and other things you're doing in the vineyard to kind of bring this bring this to life with practical examples? Yeah, IPM is one of those things. It's IPM is different for everyone, and as we've heard, they're very different approaches, and it's really, really site specific. I mean, for us, we're fairly small, so it's a lot easier to do because I can just when I take my dog for a walk, I can go and visit every block in uh, an hour and a half, pretty much, and then I've walked the entire property. Um, training is a huge thing for us. Just 
every staff member knows how to identify pest diseases. We're very fortunate um, that we live in a climate where we really only have to deal with uh, powdery mildew and then maybe a little bit of botrytis at the end of the season. Our site is not usually very botty. Um, I'd like some more of it in the Riesling actually, to be completely honest, but uh, we don't really have to treat for it. And then the only insect we, we worry about is uh, leaf hoppers. And it's really concentrated on specific blocks. And uh, that tells me that it's not the, the insect is a symptom and that it's really that block. Something is, is up with those vines um, and I need to figure out what it is. Haven't quite done that yet, but um, by using newer technologies like sap analysis, um, I get a better idea of, of what's actually going on um, because you take an old leaf sample and a new leaf sample, a young leaf and compare the two and you kind of look into the past and look into the future and then you can uh, see what the nutrient deficiency is because usually pests and diseases attack plants that are weak. It's nature's way of weeding out the weak and um, the strong ones will survive. And so, uh, yeah, we're kind of taking more of that approach. Um, we have a lot of hedges. We actually just planted more hedges to uh, increase biodiversity. I, uh, I drill cover crop twice a year. So with a no-till drill, we haven't, uh, we haven't tilled our soil in over a decade, I think, or close to a decade. Um, and we're fortunate enough from a climate, even though it freezes, the ground freezes solid for a few months in winter. If in fall we, we drill a cover crop and get it up to a few leaves, before everything freezes, um, if you choose the right species, uh, it survives. And right now I, I mowed every other row. So I still have one row of cover crop growing. Um, and I have patches of rye that's four or five feet tall. And again, the ground stays cool, same thing. And uh, I have lots of different critters. We have honeybees on site from a, a local apiary. And just ever since we've stopped mowing everything to an inch or half an inch multiple times a season. Um, there's just different flowers, different plants, not just what we seed, but also the more or less natural species that are common in the area have moved back into the vineyard and they attract beneficials, predators um, that will then help in the entire system to, to balance it out. Thank you. Uh, we've got a question here from Justin Howard Sneed about copper. Justin, would you like to come and ask us live on video? And just while you're joining us, um, on copper, I was. Um, it's always amazing to look at how how it's changed over the over the recent decades in terms of quantity. I was to use another Bordeaux example. I was in a, a very famous left bank vineyard a few years ago, and the, the winemaker said to me, "Here we are in June in the middle of the vineyard. If you'd come here 30 years ago, this entire vineyard would be blue." <laughs> And so with the whole of the left bank, like the amount of copper we used to use was ridiculous. And now it's tiny by comparison. And that vineyard is also organic biodynamic. So it, it, the reduction is enormous. But Justin, you had a question about this. Um, it's always an interesting one. So let me bring you in to ask it. Justin, over to you. Yes. Hi there, Toby. Uh, thank you very much uh, for giving me the uh, opportunity to ask this. Uh, actually, on your observation about the, um, the, the blue colour, Katie Jones told me very interestingly that the guy who discovered that copper worked um, against um, mildew, uh, discovered it because he sprayed his vines blue to stop his grapes being eaten by people who passed down the road and eat his grapes. He thought, if I spray them all blue, they won't eat them. And he realised that those vines didn't get affected by, um, by the disease pressure and, and therefore discovered that copper sulphate protects, protects vines. So little anecdote there for you. Um, but yes, as you can see, the, 
there's a huge amount of copper and sulfur sprayed on on vineyards up and down um, the country. And I don't really know enough <clears throat> about what it is that's negative about that. Um, but there's obviously laws in place that limit the amount of copper that can be used in most places. What is it that copper toxicity causes a problem with? Are, if you're using copper, if you're organic and you're using copper, are you seeing those problems? And what can you what can you do about it? I was on mute there. Great question. I mean, my same question to the Bordeaux winemaker was, that sounds like huge amounts of copper were dumped in the ground, you know, 30 years ago. Isn't that causing huge problems now? And it didn't seem to be. Um, but that's that's where my knowledge pretty much ends. And let me turn it over to the experts. Who wants to, to take that one on? Uh, are we in unknown territory, gents, or do we have a view? Um, Michael, <laughs> I'll volunteer you first. <laughs> uh, look, I, I, don't, I don't know that I have the absolutely correct answer to this. Uh, we don't really use copper here. Um, we don't, I mean, we don't use copper. Um, but um, uh, so really we base it, what we do, like I said earlier, on monitoring and, and elemental sulfur more, more than anything. Um, but I mean, my, my, what little understanding I have of, of the reason we want to minimise copper is just it's a, uh, we don't want to have a residual effect of heavy metals over time uh, in our soils. And, you know, the, the guy, all the guys in the panel here have talked about the importance of the health of soil. Um, and in an effort to maintain health of soil, you don't really want to load it, load it up with too much copper. It's my, this is my understanding. However, I suspect, judging by history, to be an issue would be an awfully large volume of copper, but I don't really know the answer to that. Thanks for your honesty, Michael. I've not met anyone else who does either. But Felix, <laughs> can you add anything to this? I'm pretty much in the same boat. I mean, uh, I don't use copper here. Um, I just, I grew up in Germany, so it, I, I'm aware of the use in, in vineyards all over uh, Europe. And I think if you, what is it called? A Bordeaux mixture that's copper, sulfur, and then a bunch of other stuff that just people, well, the vineyards used to be showered in it back in the day, and it's still used commonly, albeit in, uh, in way smaller quantities. But um, yeah, the only thing I can think of is still the, the residual, same thing as Michael mentioned, uh, residual in the soil. And it doesn't move anywhere and uh, heavy metals, not great to have. Yeah, it just doesn't sound like a good thing in your soil, does it? Too many heavy metals. Uh, Juan, um, what are your views on this? Anything you'd like to add? Yes, well, um, of course, the idea would be not to use it. But uh, we have a specific limit that it's five kilograms of copper per hectare for the whole cycle, that, that quantity is not getting, is not leaving residual, res residual uh, parts of copper in the, in the grapes, in the juice, and in the soil. Uh, and it's, it's what I, Matt and Michael mentioned heavy metals. Uh, I, I don't know if, when we, we measure our soil and we measure the activity, the micro, the microbiology pool activity in the soil, uh, and it's not affected by this very small amount of copper that it's allowed by the organic law. So, uh, of course, if if you are talking to about the Bordeaux vineyard or I don't know a vineyard from another very rainy place, maybe they are using double, triple, or ten times uh, copper, and they would never uh, follow an organic manual. 
but uh, but the, the 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 quantity we use uh, has no residual effect, and so that's that that's why we use it. And if it is sustainable or not, uh, I think that was one of the question. Uh, sustainable is a concept; is a global concept, and to be an organic and follow the rules of the organic management is part of being sustainable. So uh, I don't think it's, uh, it's, it, it's a big problem. Actually, uh, this is the way our, I don't know, grandparents used to manage the vineyard. Are, and those vineyards are the one that they are still alive. If you check on all vineyards, at least in Mendoza, for example, you're gonna check on the vineyards from the 70s, from the 80s, from the 90s that are intensively grown vineyards and those vineyards look older than the one that were planted 30 or 40 years ago without uh, synthesis chemical products and with sulfur and copper, you know, the, 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 the traditional way of management. So I don't think it's, it's a problem, but in a small amount, uh, the, the doses is five kilos per, 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 five kilos per hectare per year, you know, per cycle. Thanks. Yeah. And I believe in some areas it's even lower than that now. So Stephanie Bolton, thank yeah. you. You sent a message to me, uh, which I'll read out to the group. Stephanie says, um, I believe the amount, uh, it, depending on the amount applied, the risk of um, combo copper slash sulfur materials is to earthworms, small mammals, mammals, fish, possibly aquatic algae, algae, birds and aquatic invertebrates. So, yeah, species that perhaps don't always get the um, the credit in the local area that they're, that they're due for their role. So thank you, Stephanie. Uh, Will Drayton, you had um, well, a couple of points on this and, and a very interesting question that I'd like to bring you in to ask. So, Will, would you uh, join us on video to, to ask your question around the softness score? I like that idea. Sure, Toby. And, and maybe Stephanie could uh, answer this a bit as well with her thoughts from Lodi Rules perspective. But um uh, just, just in looking at our global uh, wine growing regions at Treasury Wine Estates, we've been wondering what the best benchmark is for sustainable practices around chemical use. I mean, everything, everyone wants to be um, uh, as light with their footprint as possible. Uh, and, and there's no such thing as a free lunch. So certain agrochemicals, if you have to, if they're organic, but you have to apply a lot of them, there might be a bigger carbon footprint for that. Or you have to apply more frequently. Uh, on the other side, something might be um, uh, more damaging, but you only apply it in small amounts. So um, we've been exploring the idea that there could be a sort of universal uh, softness score that takes into account, you know, human effects and and, and biodiversity effects and um, maybe longitudinal soil effects and, and things like that. But uh, really curious if there's either any appetite from the panel to, to, to look at something like that or room for that in a global wine conversation while we all try and learn to do better from each other. That's a really great question. Um, I volunteered Michael last time, so I'm going to volunteer one to go first this time. One. Uh, sorry, I, 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 I get a little a little uh, lost with the connection about the question. Can can, uh, can can repeat the question? Yeah, it's around um, whether there's room for a global globally consistent uh, softness score. So how um, harsh or otherwise are chemicals being used, both organic and inorganic? So that um, so the growers can kind of weigh up best practices and and also track themselves year over year to see if they're doing better. Um, uh, groups like Lodi Rules has that with their peas list, um, but uh, is that that's not universal. It's just it's just chemicals that are available in in the U.S. And so, is there room for a global kind of benchmarking of that sort of nature? 
Yeah, well, they, they should they should be. Uh, we are we are trying to. Uh, well, we have a department of sustainability and organic management. Uh, so we try to go to all the the, the panels and the and the groups that are discussing about this. But uh, I, I think I, I, each country has uh, different rules, different regulations. Uh, so I, I think a, like. A, like a global concept should should be done. I totally agree. I don't know if it's that that the question of that the, the focus of your concept. Yeah, I think I think that captured it. Uh, Felix, what do you think? Would that be helpful? I mean, yeah, it'd be lovely. <laughs> um, but as Juan mentioned, like it's it's uh, it's going to be a challenge just because just comparing Canada, where I am, and south of the border in the U.S., there are way more products that they can use on grapes than here even stuff as simple as neem oil which is um i think certified organic product to to spray and is naturally derived from neem and uh we can't use it in canada or um stylet oil so very low impact products um that are just not available to us because it's way harder to get things uh through and approved up in Canada and takes a couple of years to, um, to allow something like that. But if there was a global list, I know um, the Stamma Wine Growing Program here came up with a list, um, kind of a red, yellow, green list of products to use um, that are available to people who uh, are willing to become certified. And there's certain products um, like neonicotinoids that are simply not allowed if you want to be certified through the program. Um, you cannot apply them and other products, if they fall into the red category, you have to submit paperwork explaining exactly why you have to use it or why you want to use it, um, what else you tried. Um, but if we had a global, a global catalog, so to speak, um, that everyone could refer to, and then, I mean, we could start benchmarking ourselves against each other too. I could compare myself to a grower in a similar climate in a completely different country say with the same precip and um, see how well we are doing, or maybe they use something or they have something that uh, I've not considered. Yeah, it certainly sounds like um, challenges aside, there's opportunity for learning on exactly the basis you just suggested, Felix, if nothing else. Michael, views? Um, yeah, thanks. Um, I think that um, the, the, the softness indicator concept is kind of interesting. Uh, look, at the end of the day, we're, tr we're trying to make a great bottle of wine. And so when we backtrack from that end result, we're trying to get there in the, in the best, healthiest, uh, earth-friendly fashion we possibly can. So if we, we were to consider softness indicators for, for various products, um, we will certainly take that into mind. But I kind of think we do that already by trying to understand what products are out there and what, what, what we're comfortable using, what we're not. Um, so from that perspective, I can see it. But if it was a softness indicator from, from one property as a global indicator for a season, for example, that could be get a little complicated because here in Napa, where we've got a Mediterranean climate, it's, it's nice and dry in the summer, we probably have a lot less pressure than someone that has a, a more humid environment. And therefore, I'd be pretty unfair trying to judge them against our properties uh, on exactly the same scale. So I, I see the idea um, being great for the purpose to improve the result of, um, of softening our use upon our lands. Uh, however, I do think it, um, it, it comes with a couple of complications. 
Yeah, the unintended consequences law kicks in everywhere, doesn't it? It's a it's yeah. A, yeah. It's a bugger. But, uh, well, it's, it's, it's a great idea. Perhaps it's something we can pick up within the Sustainable Wine Roundtable at some point and see if we can make something happen there, at least to begin conversations between wine, uh, grape growers in, in similar latitudes. You know, that, that's a great place to start, you know, just to do a compare and contrast without necessarily creating anything uh, too kind of uh, onerous. Um, so thank you, uh, Will. Um, other questions? We have a bit of time before... We break, so we can either break early, or we can uh, we can have more questions. I'm sure there are some of you who want to ask. If you do want to ask questions, just uh, just turn on your video and uh, and say hello. Uh, I think that would be best. There must be somebody else. It's such an interesting area. This, otherwise, you have to listen to my increasingly ignorant questions. Okay, I've got another impossible question to answer, which is. Um, how do we untangle the the concept that that all chemicals in some shape or form are bad when they're applied to things we eat or things we grow or things we do, uh, given that um, almost no uh, products, whether it's organic or biodynamic or or um, uh, you know conventional, are made with truly zero inputs? But how do we you know educate the consumer better and how do we do a better job of that? Because I I still see a ton of confusion out there. Yeah. We only have 12 minutes, Will, for that. Uh, we need about 12 hours just to make a dent. Uh, great question, though, and one that always comes up. Um, consumer education is really tough, isn't it? I mean, it feels like it took take us 30 years to get there on calories and sugar, uh, and even then the jury's still out in some places. So it's, it's very complex, isn't it? Um, I, mean, I wonder... You know, I wonder on that question whether the whether part of the answer to that is to stop calling them chemicals. I mean, I'm not saying they're not chemicals, but you know, they're they're products. Or I mean, the the term chemical just seems a bit manufactured, doesn't it? it means or makes you feel like some, we've made something to suit our situation. And uh, I don't know, but like you say, it comes back to education. Yeah, there's a lot of complicated compounds around, aren't there? Um, one, uh, what, what are your views? I mean, you know, you guys have some serious sustainability credentials. You must have thought harder about how do we talk to the customers about this in a way that isn't going to backfire. <laughs> any, any, any rays of light so far? Well, this is a, there is a curious uh, story for us because, uh, as we know, the largest organic producer in Argentina, um, that was not the original concept. That's, that was not the idea, the main idea. And, and it's not now, uh, of course, it's, it's great to have the organic or sustainable stamp and, and, and certify because it opens to new commercial opportunities. And it's good for education because we, 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 uh, um, we show what we, we are doing, but, but, uh, but the thing is, what, what, why we do this way? Uh, and the reason is because we are truly convinced that this way is the best way to have richer wines, to have more fresh, juicy, aromatic, full flavor wines. Because when you have healthier vines with healthy roots, and, we, and when you... Uh, when you keep your soils alive, uh, at least the way the nature give it to you, uh, this is the best way to uh, express the, the place you are making wines in. And of course, 
I think the most important factor and what we have to show to our consumers uh, to, to, so, so they buy us is that uh, we have to keep this place for the next generations. Uh, maybe 200 years later, some guys are going to be making wine there. And if we use intensive synthetic chemical products in our vineyards to get the most, the largest yields and, and take the more we can from the earth, uh, this place is going to get burned and it's not gonna, not gonna be nothing there for the next generation. So the best way to, to explain that to our consumer is, there's only one place, there's, there's only one earth, one, one vineyard, and we have to keep it alive for the next generation. Thanks, uh, Felix, uh, appreciate this. this. is a tricky question, but wondered if you had any thoughts from, uh, from where you are. I think, being as transparent as possible in uh, um, in your public relations, be that with the media, be that with consumers, be that with your neighbors, be that with your staff, is is one of the biggest things. Um, the consumer is becoming more educated. They're educating themselves. Um, more often than not, it's legit, but you still get questions um, that are just based off of false information. Um, and it is it's just going to get more intense and anyone who wants to know anything about what I spray, when I spray it, how I spray it, what I do in the vineyard can come to the property. I'll show them anything that I have. I have, I have no secrets. Um, same goes for neighbors. We try to talk to our neighbors as much as possible and just keep them in the picture of, of what we're doing. And same goes with colleagues in the industry. Um, if people have questions, they can ask me anytime. Um, I'm not afraid of them stealing anything proprietary. I mean, if they if they do the exact same thing at their property that I'm doing here, it's going to fail miserably because it's tailored very much to individual blocks here and to the site um, based off of knowledge that I've gathered, that my staff have gathered, and just the history of the property. Um, at the end of the day, you can really you can only try so hard. Two years ago. Um, we were heckled from the road as we were spraying uh, BD Prep 500 on the vineyard and compost tea. So it's really, you mean, you can try so hard and then some people still don't understand it because they see a tractor and they see a sprayer and it's all bad. Um, and as long as their products, I mean, there's still products legal here to use in the vineyard where you can't legally set foot in that vineyard for two to three weeks afterwards. No, nobody can work in that vineyard because the residue on the plants is uh, is that toxic and moving away from those from using those as a company i mean i don't want my staff to not be in the vineyard for two weeks because then they're going to miss important stuff and i want to be able to walk through there thanks felix yeah i guess the answer we have at the moment is transparency you know for for incoming requests tell them what's going on tell them what you're doing tell them the pros and cons and, uh, you know, people people can be very well informed and make up their own minds. But in terms of going out there and educating consumers, it's a really tough one. Well, thanks for the question. I'm not sure we've, we've got many answers. In lots of other areas of sustainability, we have the same problem. You know, palm oil has been demonized, but we forget that palm oil came about because we wanted fewer trans fats. <laughs> so we got what we wanted. Then we had palm oil. Now palm oil has been completely demonized. Uh, but if you replace it, the yield is five or 10 times less for other crops and the land use change goes through the roof. <laughs> and, 
and palm oil is now a lot of it is sustainable, but it's completely demonized. Um, you know, the, the same argument can apply to materials as well as we know. It's all very complicated, but we're hoping um, with the work we're doing with the Sustainable Wine Roundtable uh, in the coming years, we can help try and create some clarity and share some examples from all of you further. I think we'll draw this session to a close here, uh, but thank you all for a fascinating and frank discussion. Um, I run a lot of agriculture, sustainable agriculture conferences in, in the non-wine sector, and getting anyone to talk about chemicals <laughs> is really difficult in my experience. People get very nervous. Um, and so you guys have been very brave to come and talk about what you're doing and your views, and I really appreciate it. I'm sure the audience does as well. And uh, I'd just like to thank uh, to thank Felix Wan and Michael uh, and our audience.